Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning. How we doing? Ready to go? Happy to see you all on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, my name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have, your word, have his word, I hope you do. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I'll go ahead and get this out of the way. I feel like I'm being typecast a little bit. Today we'll be talking about uh, the disciples, the first disciples who were called, and they were fishers of men, and I promise this Sunday I have no props. Uh, but if you will, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. A few weeks ago, we were at the doctor's office for just a normal checkup with our son, Benjamin. He's uh, 18, month old, 18 months old, so it's time for a checkup. And we're sitting there going through the normal routine. He's a squirmer. He hates sitting still, and uh, he's sitting there on the bench. And uh, the doctor uses that little device, an otoscope. Any doctors in the room? Is that right, to look in the ear? I got a thumbs up. Okay, I see a few. I, I looked this way. I knew there was some that way. Uh, look, looks in his ear. You know, they're looking for whatever you're looking for in a kid's ear. I don't know. Ask, ask David Bailey uh, after, after this gathering what, what that is. And they were looking at his ear, and, and, she, and she, the nurse puts it down on the table. And uh, we're sitting there, and Ben picks it up. It sticks it on one side of his head and goes like this and rubs it all the way across his forehead and put it down. And we were sitting there, like, looking at him like, what is he doing? And finally, Meredith just like puts her head down a little bit and starts laughing. And she said, he thinks it's a th- thermometer. He thinks it's a forehead thermometer. So we're talking about taking his temperature. And so he saw this little thing. It was like, this is what you do. This is how my mom does it. I'll do it just like, just like she does. And uh, I, I thought that was so funny. And as I was thinking about this idea and this passage about these disciples laying down everything in their life and just walking with Jesus, I realized, you know, just like that instance and in many others, Uh, Our kids and the way that they learn from us is kind of a metaphor for what true discipleship to Jesus looks like. You see, everything about what kids understand about the world and about themselves, how they think, who they become, what they love, how they should feel, they learn from observing and walking with their parents and following in their ways. And I think in our passage today, that's exactly the picture for discipleship that Luke contends for here. Do you see, in, in, out of every possible way that we might understand and know and respond to Jesus, a true disciple is one who follows Jesus. That sounds simple, but a true disciple is one who follows Jesus. So today as we look at this text, we'll ask this simple question, well, what does it mean then for us to follow Jesus? A few things that I think stand out before we get there. It means to have faith in Jesus, to be obedient to Jesus, and to be on mission with Jesus. So let's take a look at, uh, look at Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We'll read through this together, make some comments, and then we'll get to these points of application. It says this, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake Gennesaret. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee. So if you can imagine, just get this mental picture in your mind that that Jesus has been traveling around and he's preaching the word of God, preaching the gospel, and he's attracting this crowd and they're gathered around him. If you can just picture, he's there by, he's back to the lake and they're pressing in on him. More and more people are coming. So what exactly was he teaching that got such attention? 
Well, Jesus said himself at the end of Luke chapter 4, if you look back just at the previous verse, what did Jesus say that he was going to be traveling around and doing? He said, well, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So that's what gathered this crowd, this crowd that was pressing in on him, all these these people coming around. You can just imagine hundreds of people scattered about to hear this guy, Jesus, preaching this message. And what was Jesus teaching? He was teaching the message of radical grace. He preached the good news of the gospel, but not just as any ordinary teacher. He preached the good news of the gospel as the very one who made that message good news. Verses 2 and 3 go on to say this, And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out from them and were washing their nets. So they're done with what they were doing and getting into one of the boats. So Jesus steps into this guy's boat, maybe don't do that, which was Simon's. He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So you can just imagine Jesus is seeing this crowd kind of forming and gathering around him. He thinks, that you know what, anybody have like little kids that when they want to talk to you, they run and stand like right here, like right in front of you and just look up at you and you're like, hold on, let's take a step back, let me get some space, let me be able to interact and look at your face. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. He steps out on this boat and they, they come out a little ways from the land. Let's pick up in verses four through five. And when he had finished speaking, he turns his attention. He says to Simon, who's Peter, put out in the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. So kind of out of nowhere, we see this this scene forming where Jesus is speaking to this large crowd. But he turns his attention not only to these few disciples here, Peter James and John, but specifically to Peter. It seems like it's kind of out of nowhere. And then, rather unexplainedly, he says, put your nets out again. Cast them out again. Now, at this point, if they're, if they're using nets to fish, uh, it's probably likely that they had been fishing through the night. They're using these nets to go down deep in the middle of the night. And by daytime, that's not the way they're catching fish. So these guys are probably tired. They've been at it for hours at this point, And they're telling Jesus, hey, Why don't you stick to carpentry and preaching? We know a little bit about fishing, right? We've already tried this. We've been at it all night, and we've caught nothing. So why don't you stick to that and let us handle the preaching? But nevertheless, it says that Peter obeyed what Jesus asked of him. So I think this scene raises an interesting question for us, and that is, was Peter being disobedient to Jesus? Any parents of teenagers in the room? Was this kind of like that eye-rolling compliance that you get from a teenager? Like, oh, right? It's really, it's really difficult to, like, take lip from someone whose frontal lobe isn't all the way developed, right? Like, you're like, come on, kid. I know a thing or two. You just need to listen to what I say. But you can just imagine that Peter's saying, oh, Jesus, we did this already, but I'll humor you. So is this an act of disobedience from Peter to Jesus? Now, I don't think so. Because ultimately, Peter does what Jesus asked him to do. But here's something that's really interesting about this. How did Jesus respond to Peter's impatience and disbelief and lack of understanding? Was he angry? He yell at Peter and say, I know better than you. Do what I say. No, Jesus was patient with Peter. He was patient. I think a truth for us to see here is that coming to God 
with a lack of understanding, our doubts, our frustrations, our fears, our worries, is not in and of itself an act of disobedience. Disobedience happens when we obey these impulses rather than obeying what Jesus has called us to. You see, obedience to Jesus isn't a matter of robotic do-gooding, just doing the right thing as soon as Jesus says, like, like, like he is with Peter. When Jesus comes to us, he is patient with us. He gives us space to be vulnerable and honest about where we are, where we are in our limitations, our lack of understanding, and our frustrations. It might surprise you to hear that God can handle your doubt. And he does that in verses 6 through 9. It says this, and when they had done this, they closed, enclosed a large number. Later in Luke and Acts, that, that same phrase there is translated as a great multitude. You can imagine how that appears later as Peter preaches to a great multitude, as a great multitude gathers to hear their message. So they enclosed a great multitude of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So definitely, Jesus proves Peter wrong. They can't even contain all the fish that they thought that they could never catch. And Peter's response to Jesus' miracle seems a little strange. It, it kind of seems a little melodramatic if we don't really think about the context. He falls down at Jesus' feet and says, depart from me, O Lord. So why would he react in such a way to what Jesus had just done? I would say if you were a fisherman, you'd probably be excited that some guy said, hey, now if you've ever gone fishing with a guide before, these guys know the water. And they say, right over there, put your Put your net, or put your net, put your, put your line right there. I promise you'll catch a fish. And it's like they know, and all of a sudden that happens. If you're a fisherman, you're trying to catch fish, you'd think he'd be a little bit more excited. But he was stricken with fear. And he falls down at Jesus' feet. Why would he respond in such a way? Well, I think the truth that Luke wants us to see is that Peter did not just see some guy do a magic trick. He did not just witness some expertise on fishing he realized that he was in the presence of the all-powerful Son of God. And if that's the case, his response is fitting. In fact, if you look in the Bible at other examples of theophanies or appearances of God before people, they look a lot like this one. If you recall the calling of Isaiah, if you read the first part of Isaiah chapter 6, you see that when God calls him and asks him to be a prophet, to declare his words, Isaiah, when he comes in the presence of God and sees his majesty and glory, it says in verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He falls down and sees the glory of God. Something similar happens when Moses, uh, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. It says that when God spoke to Moses in this way and saw the miracle of God's presence before him, it says that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. They see and recognize God. They realize they're in the presence of God. And that's exactly what happens for Peter here. 
And I think that's why this passage is so important to to this message that Luke is wanting us to see in his gospel. I, I would suggest it's a type of like fulcrum. It's the center point of his gospel because it helps us answer the question, if this Jesus is who he says he is, then what is the right response to him? What is the right response to Jesus? Peter here is an essential picture of what discipleship in in Luke truly is. He recognizes who Jesus is as he hears the message of the gospel, and he bows down to him as Savior and Lord. And the rest of his response fills out that picture even more. Look with me in verses 10 through 11. It says this, And so also were James and John, two other disciples who were fishermen, were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Two things are worth noting here. The first is this. Seeing Peter's reaction to what just happened, what does Jesus tell him? Hey, stop crying. Get over it, man. No, he says, Do not be afraid afraid. Do not be afraid. What does he mean by that? Well, when Peter realizes that he's a sinner, not just in the face of a cool, wise teacher or great fisherman, but that he's a sinner before the holy, perfect Son of God, he is rightfully afraid. Of all the things that Peter does, if you read the rest of the gospel, he's not all that perfect. He's kind of a numbskull sometimes, right? But he got this part right. He got this part right. So why would Jesus tell him not to be afraid? You see, all these uh, instances of theophanies, like these appearances to God, to people uh, in the Bible, all of them kind of follow a very similar formula. People see the presence of God. They see his, his glory and his majesty, his holiness. They fall down on their face before him. And these words of not being afraid often accompany these instances in the scripture. So one commentator says, to answer the question, how could they not be afraid? Robert Stein says that the instruction to not be afraid is in and of itself an assurance of the forgiveness of sins. Essentially, what Peter was telling Jesus is, you have nothing to fear because I am the Savior who has come to reconcile the gap that is between us, the sin that you recognize between my holiness and my perfection and your sinful, broken, ugly self is real, but you have no reason to be afraid because I will be the forgiveness for your sins. So do not be afraid. Friends, we can be in the presence of Jesus and have no fear because he himself is the forgiveness of our sins. Amen? And when they they had done all these things and all these things happen, it says that Peter experiences the grace of Jesus and then how does he, along with uh, James and John, respond to what Jesus says? It says they left everything and followed him. As I mentioned before, I think that this passage is so important to the the message that Luke wants us to hear. It's so important to the picture of discipleship that he wants us to see what it means to truly follow Jesus. You see, because throughout this gospel, and if you read all the gospels, you'll see kind of a similar trajectory happening. Not everyone responds to this message and to Jesus in the same way. 
Not everyone responds in the same way. In fact, I can think of three kind of paradigmatic, like big examples of how people respond to Jesus in ways that are not exactly like the disciples. One of the biggest ones that stands out are these guys called the Pharisees. Ever heard anything about these guys? All right, these guys were the religious leaders, the do-writers. They knew the law well. In fact, like we hear Pharisees and we think like bad guy that's just like this religious moralist or something like that. That's not what the Pharisees were. When, when, when these people experienced the Pharisees in the first century, they thought, that's somebody who's perfect. They know the law front and back. They get it. And these Pharisees we see in the Gospels are often the foes of Jesus. You see, they oppose him and they want to lead people astray. When they hear the words of Jesus, they are angered. They're offended by what he says. And these people are easy to spot in how they shape the, the, the culture and around them, how their influence permeates the attitudes and affections and the aims of the world around them. Some people hear the gospel of Jesus and they oppose him. They're, they become foes of Jesus. But then I think we see another interesting character, and it's funny to call them a character here in this passage, and we see them later throughout the Gospel of Luke, and that is the crowd. You see, every time that Jesus is teaching, there's always this great crowd that's following him around, hanging on every word that he says, ready to hear what he teaches, ready to hear what miracles on the day that Jesus was turning water into wine, attendance was an all-time high. You can imagine these guys are... That didn't land for most of you. These guys are really looking to see what this guy Jesus is all about. He's an oppressive kind of guy. Well, in the Gospel of Luke, the crowds aren't a picture of what true discipleship looked like. You see, the crowds are merely fans of Jesus. Crowds are merely fans of Jesus. There are a lot of these kinds of people filling the pews of churches all across the world right now. People who know the Bible who are impressed by Jesus, who are inspired by Jesus, who think he's a good moral teacher, who inspires me to be a better person. There are many people who are near and adjacent to the gospel in the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of his church, but they do not actually know him. They are just fans at an arm's length from him. You see, there are many people who are inspired by Jesus but will never be changed by him. But we see this third response happening here with Peter. You see, these people are not just foes. They're not fans. They're the followers of Jesus. When they hear the words of Jesus, something is different. They obey. And they not only obey in the moment, they devote their lives to following him. And I believe that Luke is showing us this picture, this incredible example in Peter to show us what a true disciple of Jesus is. A disciple is not one who opposes Jesus or is merely a fan of Jesus. A disciple is one who follows Jesus. So as we take a look at this text, I want to ask this simple question by way of application for us. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, the first thing is this, it means that we have faith in Jesus. Here in this passage, everything hinges on this encounter that Peter and James and John have with Jesus. And what happens here? I think two things are really important. One is they come to understand who Jesus is, and two, they see what he came to do. 
Luke tells us that they heard Jesus preaching the word of God. And out throughout Luke and Acts, that phrase of the word of God is used to refer to when the disciples or later the apostles were preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. So first, these disciples had this encounter where they heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say this just by way of caveat because those, those, those words can kind of hit our ears and, and fall a little flat. You know, it's a shame to think that in some ways our minds are desensitized to the significance of the message that these guys heard. You see, the thing that Jesus taught them and the thing that we hear when we interact and encounter God's word, when we encounter Jesus, is unlike any truth that we have ever heard. But surely what happened here, they didn't just hear the words of Jesus, it was more than just a clever sermon, a clever teaching about the Bible. It was more than that, right? You see, in the moment here where they encountered Jesus, the fishermen not only heard the words that Jesus said, they not only heard his proclamation of the good news of the gospel, they heard this proclamation from the one who was Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And they recognized in this moment who he truly was. They recognize that it's because of this man that stands before us that this message is good news at all. You see, this guy, Jesus, he wasn't just some traveling philosopher, maybe a Stoic or a Cynic, traveling around to teach people about what it means to live the good life, to experience human flourishing. What Jesus wasn't was just some clever rabbi challenging their understanding of the Bible, Torah. And Jesus wasn't merely a teacher giving them propositional truths about the world and about their lives. The good news of the gospel, because of who Jesus was, has real implication for their lives because he is the Messiah, Son of God, who has come to save people from their sins. So they not only hear that message, they say, this is that Christ. And look at their response here. Luke wants us to see that when we encounter Jesus and hear the good news of the gospel, there is a right way to respond just as there are wrong ways to respond. And the right way to respond is through faith in Jesus. Now if I ask this morning, what does it mean to have faith in Jesus? I imagine that we'll get a lot of different things that come to mind. In fact, I'm going to ask you just to take part in a mental exercise. You ready? Don't say it out loud. Mental exercise. When you hear the word faith, what comes to mind? What scripts run in your head? What do you think of? What pictures do you see? What things do you imagine? When you hear faith, is it a religion? Is it a thing that I believe? What, what is faith? Well, I think that Romans 10, 9 tells us very simply what it means to respond to Jesus in faith. It says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and in your heart believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what a faith response to Jesus is. Two parts of that. It says that if you confess with your mouth, confess with your mouth, that means you're not just saying or believing that the gospel is true or that the Bible is real or that Christianity is your religion or the religion of your parents. It's a confession with your mouth that is backed up with your life that Jesus is Lord. That's one thing. 
And the second thing Romans 10, 9 says that we believe in our heart. That's not just like a really belief. That's not just a belief we try really, really, really hard to believe. It's a genuine kind of belief. No, it's more than that. It's not just an acknowledgement that what the Bible says is true, but a genuine belief from our hearts and from our souls that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, was raised from the dead, and now reigns in heaven with God. And again, that is not just some faraway story. To believe in your heart means that you believe and know with confidence that by his blood you experience the grace of God. The Bible says that's what a faith response looks like. And that's exactly what we see from the example of Peter here. He recognizes who Jesus is and hears the words that he says in that truth, that reality becomes real for him. He confesses Jesus as Lord and believes in his heart that what he said he would do on the cross some years later would actually happen and that was real and that was real for him. That's what faith looks like. That we confess and believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is real for us. And the Bible tells us that because of God's grace, there is nothing more for us to do. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says that by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. When we look at this story, friends, Peter, James, and John experience the good news of the gift of God's grace on a boat in the Sea of Galilee some 2,000-odd years ago. But, friends, this story jumps off the page and becomes real for us because that good news is ours today. That same gospel that changed and radicalized these men's lives is the same gospel for us today. That same Christ who stood before them and preached himself and his death and resurrection and his ascension into heaven, his reigning with God, the same Jesus who preached that gospel to these men preaches it to you today. This is good news for you. If you're here this morning, I hope and know that many of you have responded in faith to Jesus. That many of your lives, we see the evidences of God's grace all throughout your life in the way that you live, your marriage, your parenting. Every facet of your life has been permeated with this faith in Jesus Christ, and it's transforming your life in a real way. Praise God that by his grace that is true for so many. But I'm also aware enough to know that there could be some people here, even this morning, who have spent their entire lives adjacent to the church adjacent to the gospel, adjacent to the message of Jesus, but you've never seen the gospel transform your life. Friends, I want you to hear this morning that if that's you, the grace of God can be yours today. Jesus Christ freely offers this gift to you. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and, and, and be better, work harder, be less sinful, or anything like that. Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, come to me and experience the free gift of my grace. If that's you this morning, I just ask, respond in faith to Jesus today. But the second truth is this, that to follow Jesus means that we become obedient to Jesus. I'm going to ask for audience participation. Are you ready? That was not a very ready, ready. Are you ready? This one you do say out loud. You don't think, okay. What comes to mind when I ask you to describe who Jesus is? You can shout it out. The Holy Spirit, okay. King of kings, I heard. Son of God. 
Savior? I'm sorry? Holy? Love? Any more? There's some really timid responses out there today. Messiah? Okay. Our protection, King of Kings. All of these things are true. Praise God. Every single one of them. Jesus is all of these things. And here's why I ask us to participate in that. I want our minds to be thinking, what does it mean, these words that, that become imaginative realities for us? That sounds like a lot, but these words that, that shape the meaning and understanding of who Jesus is, they matter for us. They frame how we interact with God's word and who we understand Jesus to be. Something that's really interesting in the Gospel of Luke is that people call Jesus different things depending on who he is to them. People call Jesus different things depending on who he is. And that's easy to imagine, right? Uh, I have a wife. Her name is Meredith. Just because you have a wife, I don't call her my wife. She's not my wife. That's your wife. She's a different person to you than she is to me. She's a friend. Just the same as it is true for me also. People have different names for Jesus and Luke depending on who they are to him and who he is to them. You see, all throughout Luke's gospel, these crowds that have gathered around, these people who are interested and inspired and intrigued by the teaching of Jesus, do you know what they call him? Teacher. Teacher. They call him teacher because he teaches really cool stuff. He teaches them things. He teaches them things about the Bible and about reality and what it means to be human. He says all of these things. He teaches them. But in Luke's gospel, there is a word that the disciples call Jesus that no one else calls Jesus. And that word appears here in our text today. It's master. So I want to ask you just this, mo this morning to consider in your minds, what does it mean that Jesus is master? What could it mean that Jesus is master? I think... What Luke wants us to see is that the difference between a true disciple and one of the faceless crowd is that the disciples not only heard what Jesus taught, they obeyed what he taught. The disciples, as it would later say in the epistle of James, were not merely hearers of the word, they did what it said. True disciples are those for whom Jesus is not merely teacher, but master. And friends, for us to be followers of Jesus, it means that we are obedient to walking in the ways of Jesus. This is the distinctive feature of the life of a Christian, of the life of a disciple of Jesus. It's that we actually follow Jesus with our lives. We do what he says. That is the distinctive feature of a disciple. Following Jesus is submitting to the lordship of Jesus in your life in every level from the micro, the day-to-day, -to, -day, to the macro, these big sweeping things about our lives. At the micro level, on the day-to-day, -day, walking in the way of Jesus involves daily devotion to following after him faithfully. Luke later, it records Jesus describing the Christian life this way. You may know this text well. It's one that is quoted often in Luke 9.23. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross not once, but daily, and follow me. Let him deny himself 
and take up his cross. The cruciform, the way of the cross, the way of Jesus is one of dying to your old way and be each and every day learning to walk in the way of Jesus. Following Jesus is an everyday vocation where we learn as the apprentices from the true master how we ought to live, what we ought to love, and who we ought to be. But as we do this day by day, transformation happens, I think, at the macro level because we are given a new purpose, new meaning, and direction for our lives. When the disciples were confronted with this path of two ways, they see who Jesus is and they hear the words that he preaches. They can either respond to him or they can reject him. When they see this path of two ways, they can either continue in their old way of sin and self or leave it all behind and follow Jesus. They chose the latter. And what we see both in their example and as being true for our lives is that following Jesus changes everything about the trajectory of our lives. Being a Christian is not just having a certain set of beliefs. It's belonging to a new way of being. It's belonging to a new meaning, a new purpose, belonging to a new trajectory for our lives. We are invited to live not for ourselves, but for God and for his kingdom. So I just ask you this morning, just a simple check-in by way of application. Where in your life might you be out of step with obedience to Jesus? Maybe for you, this is something that's just like a day-to-day. I know I'm struggling with this sin. I know that I'm really wrestling with this every day. I can't find victory over this thing. Maybe that's happening in the day-to-day for you. But maybe it's bigger than that. I mean, it's quite possible that our lives are taken by, our affections are drawn to, entire ways of being and patterns for our life that are not honoring to God and not faithful to Him and not for those who would be true disciples and followers of Jesus. It could be that repentance is needed for our ambition. It could be that repentance is needed for what we love, what we chase after, where our money goes, what we spend our time on. Where in your life is your obedience out of step with a true disciple and follower of Jesus? Friends, the invitation for you this morning is by God's grace to leave that boat in the water follow him. And the third thing we see is this. To be a follower of Jesus means that we are on mission with Jesus. One of the clearest ways that we see Jesus changing the the direction and purpose of the disciples' lives is that he invites them to participate in mission and ministry with him. You see, all throughout Luke and Acts, these disciples have devoted everything about their entire lives to being a part of what God is doing in the world. And the Bible teaches us that that is not unique to the disciples or to the professional Christians. To participate in the mission of God is a calling for all Christians. The Great Commission, it's in Luke. It just looks a little different than it does in Matthew and maybe how some of us are familiar with it, this commissioning out, the sending of the disciples to continue the ministry and mission of Jesus. It says in Luke 24, verses 47 through 48, it was also written that this message, the message of the gospel, would be proclaimed in the authority of Jesus' name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. 
That is the category for your life. A witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, I want us to see this morning that to follow Jesus is to be on mission with him. It's to join in God's work and God's mission to take part in his effort to seek and to save the lost, as Jesus would later say about himself and his ministry. As these disciples here in this example of Luke chapter 5 learned the vision and trajectory for their lives was going to completely change. They would no longer be simple fishermen out in the water. They were going to be fishers of men. And Jesus tells them pretty curiously that they would not be casting down their nets any longer to catch fish, but that they would be following Jesus and teaching others to do the same. Now, I'm going to step out a little bit, and I could be wrong about this. That's like saying no offense before you say something really rude, okay? I could be wrong about this, but I think there may be a little more going on in this text than just like a simple, cool truth about being fishers of men. I could have brought a net up here and be like, all right, guys, go catch them. I think there's more going on here. Don't you think it's a little odd that Jesus wandered around preaching all this time and he called these actual fishermen to be fishers of men? Like, would he have said that to somebody else? Or did he have this like bit in mind? He was like, you know what? Whiteboard meeting. I really want my followers to be like fishers of men. You know what? I need to go find some fishermen. That way I can do my fishers of men bit. Do you think that's what happened? I mean, it's kind of odd when you really take a step back and think about it. What was he saying here, and why did that just all of a sudden miraculously fit? And again, caveat, this isn't really 100% clear in the text, but I think there's maybe some meaning that's happening around this. While I think that being a fisherman is a true picture of what evangelism is, that we're casting out our message, our proclamation of the gospel, and gathering other people to follow Jesus, I wonder if Jesus isn't pointing us to a larger truth about what it looks like for everyone to be on mission with him. Here's what I mean. The disciples were called fishers of men because they were fishermen. But I think it's very clear from the rest of the scriptures that Jesus is calling students and artists and doctors and attorneys and garbage men and engineers, most of you, and stay-at-home moms for men also. God is calling all of these people, regardless of their background, he's saying, I'm not going to make all of you fishers of men. I'm going to transform your life and your purpose and give you a new trajectory and give you a new vision for your life. Who you are is now being defined by what you are doing in his name and belonging to and participating with him in mission. And that, what that means is that the call to be a fisher of men might look different in my life than it will in your life because God has made each one of us unique from one another. But every single person is called by God to be used by him for his kingdom. God is calling you exactly according to how you are positioned, the job that you have, who you know, how he has wired you, how he has gifted you to make his gospel known. That is the calling for every one of our lives. It isn't about who has these giftings or who has this vocation. The point is that you have them, and God has called you to a purpose, and that is to transform your life to belong to and participate with him in ministry. No one else here can be who God has made you to be for his purpose. God has made you uniquely in that. 
No one can do in the mission of God what he has called to do in purpose to do in advancing his gospel through you. That is yours alone. And, and, and Christian, that is the call for our lives. God, by his grace, invites us joyfully to take part in this mission. It isn't for the professional Christians or the people who have the gift of evangelism. It's a calling for all of our lives to be a witness to the good news and grace of Jesus. And every single one of us can do that if our life has been touched by the grace of Jesus. Can we not? Now, you might think, I don't really have that much to offer God. I'm quiet. I'm actually a pretty quiet person in most contexts. I'm much more animated. I will go home and take a nap for like four hours after this. <laughs> I'm quiet. I'm incapable. I'm nervous. I'm afraid. I don't really think that I have much to offer God. All of these things might run through your head when I say God is calling you to take part in his mission. All of these things might run through your head. But hear this, friends. God can do a lot with your yes. God can do a lot with your yes. Who were these disciples? Were they PhD professors at a seminary? Were they professional pastors with all the trappings that I have? <laughs> all my expertise and skill? No. They were fishermen. They were fishermen. They were simple people who had nothing more to offer God than their yes. But God can do a lot with their yes. He can break nets that you can't fill. He can do all of these things. He's not asking for your ability, for your gift set, for the clever things that you bring to the table or how you can change the mission and do all of these things. He's not asking for any of that. He's asking for you to be available for him and allow him to do the work. You see, God was the one who filled the nets with the great multitude of fish. God will be the one by his grace who brings the multitudes to himself to hear and know the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's asking you to participate to be available, to be used by him, no matter who you are, where you are, where you're coming from, how you're gifted, or anything of the kind. All of these things are truths about what it means for us to follow Jesus, that we have faith in him, that, that our lives are transformed, that we're walking in obedience with Jesus and we're participating in the mission that he has called us to. So I just want to ask you this morning, just by way of application, a really simple question. What do you need to leave behind to follow Jesus faithfully? What do you need to leave behind to follow Jesus faithfully? Again, you might be here this morning and you don't know Jesus. This is all kind of like foreign. You're like, I can't really believe that all these people do this every Sunday instead of go eating, going to eat brunch. Brunch is awesome. Bottomless mimosas. Why are we not doing that? Maybe I shouldn't say that. I did. <laughs> Sorry, Grandma, if you're watching the live stream, I guess. <laughs> but there may be some of you this morning, you don't know Jesus, and this is all foreign language to you. Friends, the invitation for you is to leave your old way behind and follow Jesus. He doesn't care who you are or what you've been through. He knows all that, and he loved you anyway. Jesus says, in, in, in Romans chapter 5, verses 8, it says that, that Jesus knew who we were. He knew in our sins, yet he died for us anyway. He knew everything that you have done, every crooked, twisted, messed up thought that you've ever had, everything that you've ever done that defames his name and defiles yourself. Jesus knows all those things, yet it says that he went to the cross in love, knowing all of those things. 
And he invites you by his grace to turn away from your sin and your former self and to follow him. So I invite you this morning to do that. Do that. And maybe for you that are walking with Jesus, there's just some sin that's really tripping you up right now. And you're really struggling to be obedient to Jesus. Day by day, it's a challenge to walk with him. Maybe there's some sin and rebellion in your life that is holding you back. Friends, taste and see the good news of the gospel and leave that boat in the water. Leave that boat in the water. By his power and by his grace and by the life of his spirit dwelling in you, you can put to death the deeds of the body and be raised to life to walk in Christ. That's not a one-time thing. The power of God is not a one-time thing that covers your sins and then you're good for the rest of your life. No, the gospel of grace is that he is day by day transforming you to look more like Jesus and give you victory over sin. Change your perspective. Change your perspective. Repent and walk with them. And maybe you're one of those people that is just absolutely paralyzed by the fear of walking with Jesus and being faithful and participating with him in mission. I get it. I really do. But maybe this morning, you need God to challenge your heart to say, God, you've called me to this, and if you're saying that you can make it able... I can be available. If you're saying that you'll do the work, I can be available. Give God your yes this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel, that before the foundations of the the world, your word tells us that we were chosen in you, made blameless by the blood of your son Jesus, dying on the cross for our sins. Father, you have rescued us from our rebellion and sin and given us life in you. This is all a work of your grace and by your grace alone. Father, we're here this morning because that gospel has become real for us and that is only so because you sought us out, called us to yourself and made us your own. Father, we are worthy to be called enemies. We are worthy of nothing that you give us, but Father, you call us friends, sons and daughters, you invite us to the table. Father, we are recipients of your grace. So Father, we ask that day by day you would continue to teach us what discipleship looks like. Father, transform our minds, transform our hearts, transform our lives around this vision for following you faithfully. Father, as one one saint said, that following you is an apprenticeship to become human again. Father, teach us who we are and who we were made to be. Teach us that, that the longing in our hearts and our lives is for you and you alone. Father, transform us by a work of your power and grace. And Father, use us to accomplish great things that you will do through people who are available. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.